Hello, and thank you for listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. I am Teresa Kuhn, helping you live wealthier. Resources are available for you at livingwealthyradio.com. Could you use more power of persuasion in your professional dealings? Do you sometimes feel like it's not easy getting a potential client, employee, or partner to say yes? No matter what area of life, from personal relationships to investments to your career, everything is a negotiation. And if we understand the nature of negotiations and how to get from no to yes, our lives could be enriched in so many ways. Our guest, Herb Cohen, is an expert on the art of negotiating who has advised U.S. presidents, Fortune 500 companies, the CIA, FBI, and many others. He's the best-selling author of You Can Negotiate Anything and Negotiate This, Caring But Not That Much. He's going to share with us how to enrich our lives by seeing everything as a negotiation and understanding the power of getting the yes we need and want. Welcome to the show, Herb. Well, thank you, and thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Absolutely. So is it true that absolutely everything is a negotiation? No, everything that is the product of a negotiation is, of course, negotiable. Uh, And therefore, if you deal with what isn't a product of a negotiation, that would be ethical, moral, and religious principles. Uh, For example, uh, the Ten Commandments was not a negotiated document. The Lord didn't say, hey, I got these uh, 15 commandments, and Moses said, well, I was thinking along the lines of five, and the Almighty said, let's split the difference. That's not what happened. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount was not negotiable. Jesus did not get together with uh, his followers and say, well, let's come up with some principles for living. That's not what happened. So those things, ethical, moral, religious principles, would not be negotiable, but everything else is. The price you pay for a car, uh, when you go into a store, whether it's Neiman Marcus or Macy's or any store at all, that is negotiable. If you go to buy a piece of furniture, a stereo, uh, a new iPod, that's negotiable. And so virtually everything can be, not should be, but but can be negotiated. So who do you consider the best negotiators in our culture? Well, as far as my own experience is concerned, it's not one of our presidents, most of them, uh, in terms of negotiation, give ineptitude a bad name. Uh, but it's probably children, and all of us are exposed to children, whether they're our kids or kids that we see or relatives. Uh, we know that children who have very little power at all, the 
little people in a big person's world, they seem to get whatever they want or pretty uh, come pretty close to it. And what do these kids do? Well, number one, they aim high. They understand that if you expect more, you get more. And so from the parents' point of view, children always seem to be making unreasonable demands. But that pulls up expectation and is good. The second thing that uh, these kids understand is that no, N-O, is not a final statement, but rather it's an opening bargaining position. And so whenever you approach a parent, for example, with a new idea, a new request, their first reaction is to say no. And that's true not only with parents, but people in general. Why? Because if you are surprised, you will say no. Uh, and if you change your mind and go from no to yes, People like you. They say, hey, what a decent, reasonable individual. But if you were to blurt out yes, and then later on say, well, remember I told you yes, make that no. People feel you've reneged. We have terminology for that. He, she went back on their word. And so kids understand that they want to aim high. Number two, no is an opening bargaining position. Number three, they form coalitions with other people that influence the decision makers. In the case of kids, uh, when they go to their mom and she says no and the father backs her up, he says no, it seems, you know, that's the end of it, but not for a child. They move up to the next level, grandparents. Uh, and it's easy to form coalitions with grandparents because they together have a common enemy, the parents. And last of all, kids persist. They are tenacious. They don't give up. My wife and I, we were the parents. We are the parents of three children. Uh, our oldest child, our daughter, we used to have standards. Uh, and we insisted she adhere to those standards. Second kid came along. We had the same standards, but we had a few exceptions that we would make. Third kid, we were tired people. You know, we had been through this before. Uh, I remember saying to my youngest, why don't you ask your brother and sister? They'll tell you how it used to be around here. And so my point is, if these are good negotiators, uh, some of the things that they do, we ought to adapt. We ought to raise our expectations as to what could be accomplished. Uh, two, we recognize that no is a position people take at a given point in time. When they say no, it's no right now, but in 20 minutes it might move. Other information may become available, and like kids understand that. Uh, three, we form coalitions. We recognize who can influence the decision makers, and four, we're tenacious, we don't give up. So that's it, kids. Kids, fantastic. So what are some of the biggest negotiation 
mistakes that you've seen people make? And, and actually, before you answer that, why don't you share little bit of your background, because you've been involved in some of the most uh, historically important negotiations of our last 30, 40 years in the history well, of our country. Yeah, although I don't like to talk about myself ordinarily, and, you know, people ask me, what, give us your introduction, and I don't have an introduction, and uh, um Whatever it, anyone says about me is fine. I've been involved in a lot of things. Uh, I was in the military service. I came back. I went to law school. And uh, my wife and I, she was going to college. I was going to law school. We were both full-time employees, uh, full-time students, excuse me. And uh, we had no money, so I got a job. And the job I got was a claims adjuster in the streets of New York. This is kind of interesting because my family never negotiated anything. They always paid retail because their attitude was, you know, hey, don't make waves. They'll raise your rates. Uh, the insurance company will or they'll cancel you. Hey, I'm just happy to be here in America. And so I didn't come from a background of negotiation, but this job involved negotiation. I was very good at this job, and uh, I kept getting promoted, and the company I worked for was Allstate, and I ultimately became a, a corporate officer in the company, and then went on to work for Sears, who, who was then the largest employer. Then I was with IBM. And I went into business myself. I taught at the University of Michigan Graduate School of Business in Ann Arbor. And then I um, worked for the FBI, the Justice Department. I worked for the FBI for 28 years. And then I was involved in the Iran hostage crisis uh, and worked with President Carter and Cyrus Vance and gave them advice, which, by and large, President Carter did not listen to. And so I was known in Washington as the guy he should have listened to. Uh, you know, we were dealing then with rug merchants in the Persian Rug Sellers Bazaar. Americans don't like the word negotiations. My wife, for example, used to refer to it as haggling, chiseling. And she would say to me, look, I don't lie for money. And the implication is that I do. But <laughs> when they took hostages, they had, at the end, 52 hostages. They saw themselves, the Iranians, as having 52 hot rugs for sale, and they were trying to get as much as they can for their illegally obtained merchandise. And President Carter, he walks into the rug seller's bazaar and tells them, I need the rugs, I want the rugs, they're the centerpiece of my foreign policy. And if I don't get them back, I won't even campaign against Teddy Kennedy in the primary. And he tells the American people publicly, everybody pray for the hostages morning and night. Everybody light a candle. In fact, tie a yellow ribbon, preferably around an old oak tree. Would you believe none of this stuff 
help the hostages get free. It only made the song made a lot of money for um, uh, uh, Tony. Uh, Tony Orlando and Dawn. Tony Orlando. Yeah, and so you know the point is that see what we were doing is when you create more demand, the price what they want for the hostages doesn't go down; it goes up. And so unintentionally, we were prolonging the captivity of the hostages. Then after that, I went on to advise President Reagan. And uh, then I uh, I helped the FBI set up the hostage negotiating program. I have, you name the university, I probably have lectured there. I kind of get around, but in my case, do not confuse movement with progress. And uh, so, you know, I've always worked. I've always been in demand. I have ideas about a lot of things, most of which are not listened to at all. <laughs> so, Well, very interesting history, though. And you're considered to be one of the top negotiators in the country, if not the world. Uh, yes, so somehow but- you've made negotiating an art Yes, well, it's something that people, everybody does. If you're an entrepreneur, if you're in business, you spend your time negotiating, you know, without realizing it. And every dollar you can save goes right to your bottom line. That's the stuff that keeps you in business. And so, like America, we don't negotiate with other countries in the world. That's why we have these big deficits. So my point is, you know, Donald Trump is right about a couple of things. And that's one of the things he's right about it. The question is, will he do something about it? I don't know if he can. He doesn't have enough people. He doesn't bring in the right people. So the title of your most recent book, Negotiate This by Caring, but not that much. Is that the secret? Well, that's the number one mistake that people make. They fall in love with something. In other words, if you walk into a jewelry store, you know, fine jewelry, and you see a bracelet, a ring that you love, and you say to your spouse or to yourself, I need this, I love this, uh, I can't walk out of the store without it. It's the most beautiful, gorgeous thing I've ever seen. Your ability to negotiate is greatly handicapped because you fall in love. So therefore, rule number one, biggest mistake people make is they fall in love with something they desire. See, whether it's... uh, a ring, a particular car, uh, or anything. They fall in love with it. And so rule number one is don't fall in love with anything but people. Don't fall in love with material things. Fall in like. In other words, I like this thing. I like the ring very much. Why do you think I'm here? Because I like it. However, I've lived a very good life before this, and without that ring, my life will go on. And you see, if that's your approach, you do well. Now you say, well, that only applies to, uh, you know, something in a, in a store. 
uh, that, that you purchase you know, in a retail establishment. No, no, that applies to everything. For example, we have a deal that we made with Iran. Now, that's not a treaty, that's a deal, okay? Because uh, that's very much, you know, like uh, uh, what happened in Chicago during uh, Prohibition, uh, where the gangsters split up the city, they had a deal. Um, well, uh, in, in essence, uh, this past treaty, see, President um, Obama came to power feeling that we were too involved in too many wars and he wanted to get the troops out of all of these particular places. So his big need is to bring all these troops home and end our involvement in all of these Mideastern wars. He knows that if Iran continued to develop its nuclear weapons, uh, even if we didn't do anything about it, Israel would have to do something about it, which would cause Obama to strike back, not even at, at Israel alone, they'd strike back at the United States, because in their eyes, we're the great Satan. Israel's only the little Satan. And therefore, we would be in enormous war. So he goes into this negotiation with Iran, whereby he must make the deal. They can't walk away. So no matter how bad it is, they're ultimately going to have to say yes. He falls in love. He doesn't see any other options. And please note the behavior of John Kerry, our Secretary of State, who, by the way, knows nothing about negotiations. He pays retail for everything, even his boat, you know, which he bought for $8.5 million. His specialty is marrying rich women and paying retail for everything. He never once acted like he'd walk away from the table. By, by the way, the Iranians did several times. They went back to Iran. They came back, you know. So the other side has got to feel, hey, this guy might walk. He might break off the negotiations. And if they feel you won't, you're going to make a deal, they will give you rigid terms or terms that can't be enforced, and you will do poorly in this negotiation. So I'm saying to you, in negotiations, you want to care, but not that much. you got to say to yourself, in every negotiation, this is a blip on the radar screen of eternity. This is a walnut in the batter of my life. I'm caring, but not that much. I'm prepared always to walk away. And if you remember that and you do that, you will find suddenly things will come to you. In other words, you start out of the store and walk to the door, the guy will follow you. He'll follow you out into the street. And if he doesn't, he says, he gives you your, his card and says, um, Mr. Cohen, Mr. Jones, uh, why don't you give me a call when you change your mind? Don't take his card. Say to him, no, no, no. Here's my card. You give me a call. 
and you will find that within the next month, you'll be getting a phone call from him. Why? Because his boss will say to him, hey, you haven't sold a car in a month. You know, you have a quota. You're under quota. You want to lose this job? Bam. He whips out your phone number. You get a phone call. Okay. Fantastic. Yes. So what would you say is, you know, when you're negotiating and there are concessions and agreements, how do you navigate through that? Because, you know, negotiating, you can negotiate anything, right? But um, yes. Yes. most negotiations have many different parts and concessions to them. Yes. Well, see, what you do when you negotiate, okay, first of all, uh, you recognize this is a game. It is the game of life. I'm caring, but not that much. There are many things much more important than this game. And that's your attitude going into this game. Then you always say you care, but not that much. Uh, and then you limit your authority. See, when you go into a negotiation, you're not the final uh, decision maker. In other words, you're going to buy a car, uh, and the, the salesman, the salesperson, saleswoman will say to you, well, uh, Teresa, I guess you can make the deal right now. I mean, you're a very responsible, you know, person, a high achiever. You'll say, well, of course, uh, this is subject to the approval of my lawyer, or my accountant, my husband, even if you're not married, you say that. In other words, you don't want to have total authority because that's the second mistake. You try to limit authority. There's got to be somebody else to go back to. Then when you negotiate, you know, you start off always uh, in an amicable fashion with a low-key pose of calculated incompetence. Do not tell the other side how brilliant you are. Uh, let them figure it out if they ever figure it out. You just, you know, you walk in, you know, and obviously, you know, I'm trying to make a deal. I'm trying to resolve this particular problem. You, you try to ask more questions than you give answers. You actually listen to the other side when they say something you like that moves you to your goal, you nod and you smile, and you reinforce that. You say, hey, that was great. That was so good, okay? When they say something you don't like, you don't say anything, okay? And then uh, you, you know, see this as a problem to be solved, and then recognize that most concessions occur in proximity to the deadline. So if you're having a slow start and there are barriers, recognize this is normal. See, you, you always go that way in a negotiation because unless there's some deadline of sorts, people don't make concessions. And so just going back to my other example, in the Iran Treaty, Kerry, our Secretary of State, 
kept moving the deadline. The Iranians are aware he keeps moving the deadline because he wants to deal so much that they don't make concessions because concessions and agreements occur at the deadline. For example, when the people file their income tax returns, everybody files in the last three to five days, okay, like 90%. You say, yeah, well, those are people getting money back. Statistically, that's true with the people getting money back. Uh, no, that's true not just with the people that owe money, excuse me, but it's also with the people that get money back. It doesn't make any difference. Everybody follows, you know, files at the very end. For example, you give a secretary seven days to type up a report. When will you get the report back typed? Probably, if you're lucky, in seven days. Okay? Give a kid three months to do a term paper in school. And we all have these assignments. When does this student start the term paper? Right Night at the before. End. Yeah. Yeah. You know, 80%, it's the night before. Now, is that a good habit? No. Does everyone know it's not the right thing to do? Yes, they know it, but they can't help it. We're all It's human affected. behavior, right? Yes. We're all affected by deadlines. And so you've got to realize if things are going slow, that's because the other side doesn't perceive there's a deadline. And, in fact, here's another thing. If virtually everything is negotiable, a point I try to make earlier, well, what about deadlines? They come about as a result of a negotiation. Therefore, they're not as firm as we think they are. And so what I'm saying if I get you to believe that this is literally the deadline, okay, in other words, if you go beyond that, you're into the abyss. It, oh, Jesus, deadline, past the deadline. And I know, eh, it is a deadline, is a deadline. See, you're looking at it literally, I'm looking at a figuratively advantage to me. In fact, even after the deadline passes, I sit there at the table, you know, with my head down like I'm really deeply depressed. And I turn to the other side who are packing up their bags leaving because they know we had a deadlock. All right? It's failure. They got to go back and reveal a deadlock. They're depressed. I turn to them and I say, now that it's over, where did I go wrong? What could I have done? What should I have done? Help me. And they will say, well, it's over. You could have done A, B, and C had you not said this. And so what I do is I do those things that they've advised me to do, and I resurrect deals that have already gone down. In other words, see, my attitude is every breakdown is a potential breakthrough. Every exit is an entrance someplace else. Even pathology can be an opportunity. And so if that's your attitude, you'd be surprised how well you will do in situations. What do you mean by pathology? Well, you know, a diagnosis of uh, illness. You know, they say, hey, you, you know, um, 
you uh, have a problem, a medical problem, and uh, uh, and you know, and some people see that oh, it's the end for me. I only have six months to live, or whatever. And some people view it as an opportunity, an opportunity to do things to change their lifestyle. Mm. And some of those people actually live well beyond what you know is told to them as the deadline we all know cases like that you know people get virtually a death sentence and 20 years is still around so are we born negotiators or can anyone really learn to be an effective negotiator obviously this is a talent that you've developed over many many decades but it's just I think from a cultural perspective, right, like you mentioned, the Persians, they, they're born into a culture where they're always negotiating. And we here in the United States aren't necessarily taught that, although there are those that, you know, seem to negotiate better than others. Yes. What are well, your thoughts on that? No, I believe that, you see... Uh, negotiators are not born but are made and I try to give you the example that my parents uh, who never negotiated anything and I I was thrown into a situation where I had to learn it uh, and I learned it uh, but you, you can become a negotiator and people become negotiators in terms of what they do in fact, the United States, at one time, we were known throughout the world as great negotiators. You know, the days of the Yankee traders where our sailing boats, you know, crossed the Atlantic and we were involved in trade. Americans were known as the people that would really make, uh, you know, great deals because they were negotiators. And why? Because we had a society where, you know, a few bucks here and there, see, we weren't wealthy, really made a difference. Now, here's what happened to America. World War II ended. We suddenly became the, 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 the only game in town. And so uh, we were manufacturing cars for everybody. We were manufacturing refrigerators. The Germans weren't doing anything. They weren't competition. The Japanese weren't competition. You know, all these other countries in Europe were doing nothing. And so we started to negotiate, and they would say, like, for example, the Brits, uh, by the way, yes, we want all these cars, but we want the steering wheel on the right side. You know what our attitude was? A. Hey, you get it on the left side, like we do in America. In fact, I'll tell you a story. This is absolutely the truth. Sikorsky Helicopter Company, which then was part of Pratt and Whitney, but now is part of United Technology, formerly United Aircraft, uh, was making helicopters, and they had a monopoly and a manufacturer. Some company wanted a buy helicopters, and they said, well, you painted uh, red, white, and blue. And they said, no, no, this is the Sikorsky color for the helicopter. It was some sort of, you know, green. 
uh, you know, like uh, camouflage green. And the company said, no, no, we want a red, white, and blue. They said, no. And so they went to Bell Helicopter, the purchaser, and said, would you do it? And Bell Helicopter went into the helicopter business. So I'm saying is that we got spoiled after World War II. We didn't have to negotiate. We stopped negotiating, and, and people it, uh, didn't realize they could. And then the department stores where people shopped in those days, you know, you didn't have, you know, the availability and options like you have now. Uh, they would make you feel embarrassed if you negotiated because they'd have to train people to, in negotiation. So you'd go into a store, you know, Bergdorf Goodman, you know, a classy store, whatever classy store is, and you'd say, well, I'd like to pay this, and they would look at you like, please, you're in Bergdorf Goodman. Mm. You, don't, you know, they'd make you feel like you're on a holy ground or something. But in truth, you can always and could always negotiate and People learn to do this, and, uh, you know, you got to believe it makes sense. See, I used to be in my many jobs. At one time I was in uh, what we called corporate personnel in the headquarters company, and uh, today it's human resources. And I'd be at lunch, and some guy would come up to me and say, hey, uh, we were just doing a pay grade schedule. What should they be, you know, for this job? Uh, some people say the top pay should be 1500 you know, uh, a month or whatever, a week. And some say 1500 some say 1800 some say 2000 What do you think? And I take a bite of my sandwich and say, well, some say 15 some say 2000 Make it 1750 And that, since I was his boss... That became the top of the grade, 1750, and you, it would now be part of a printed manual, 1750, like it was ordained by the Almighty to be 1750. Now, I, I made it 1750, uh, you know, while I was biting into a sandwich. Uh, my point is, half the things you're talking about come about as a result of a negotiation. You know, anything, like the speed limit. How do they decide what the speed limit should be in a particular place? I guess you they know, negotiated. Of course they do. One person says this, one person that. Somebody says, well, I don't know, that seems a little high, or that seems a little low. What about this? Would you buy on to this? Yeah, and that becomes, you know, or anything you think of. It comes about, you know, the price of something, you know, 990, you know, uh, and 68 cents or whatever, you know. In other words, they don't want it to be $100, so they make it 99.50, because 100 would put it in, you know, psychologically. So it's all negotiated. Everything's negotiated, you know, unless it's a religious or moral principle. Fascinating. Fascinating. So interesting. Well, I know you've been negotiating for many, many decades. I, I don't want to ask you how old you are, but you have so much passion and energy 
uh, at this point in your career for this topic. I can't imagine how how much more passionate you were about this topic 20 years ago when you were in the middle of some really high-end, um, important negotiations. Any any negotiations you're working on today that we might be aware of or familiar with? Uh, yes, um, I have. Uh, I've done some work for. I'm still in the process of working with uh, Condé Nast, and they. I don't know if you realize they uh, own Vanity Fair, the New Yorker magazine, and Vogue, and they wanted to get Vogue into uh, China. And they were having a hard time, and so I was involved in that. And uh, ultimately, they got Vogue into China. And so I'm, I do stuff overseas. Like, I understand um, the Russian mentality. And, you know, I was involved in the start negotiation, this reduction talks. Uh, when Khrushchev was there, so I know how the Russians negotiate. And even I have my ideas about the North Koreans, how to negotiate with Kim uh, Jong-un. Uh, and, you know, he portrays himself as crazy, and that's the most difficult person to negotiate with, actually, is a crazy person. And the second is an irrational person. Mm. That, a dumb person. And so one of the things I would advise your listeners is that when you negotiate, realize that dumb is better than smart, inarticulate is better than articulate, and train yourself in negotiations to say, I, I don't know. I don't understand. Would you help me on this? See, I'm, I'm kind of new at this. Or you've been around for so you compliment the other side. You've been around for so long. You've seen people like me come and go. You know, help me. In fact, that gives women an edge. You know, because they haven't been around in business as long as men. You know, overall, uh, and they have. You know, in fact, some things women have. Uh, that comes easy to them uh, that is more difficult for men is they have a better style. In other words, their demeanor, their manner. You always want to have a soft style. You know, you want to be polite and uh, you want to listen and you don't want to be, you know, like the stereotype of a good negotiator. You don't want to be a, one of these people that pound the table and and shout, raise your voice or you know, make all sorts of uh, disparaging gestures while the other person speaks. And women tend to be, you know, much more amicable and friendly, and that's good. That's really, uh, you know, good for any negotiator, no matter what their gender is. Do these techniques still work for you? Like if I was across the table negotiating with you, I'd read your books, I'd understand who you are, and I'd think that I could pick up on your techniques. How does this still work for you when you've written books and shared well, with so many people how to negotiate? What it does is it, it reduces the gaming. And people say, okay, we got a problem to be solved. In other words, you don't 
try to do all these uh, sleazeball things, you know, that that people do. You don't pound the table. Uh, you don't use emotional tactics. You don't walk out. See, because you know I know. And therefore, we can get to the heart of the problem. How do we solve this in a way where both of us benefit? That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make a deal here which is beneficial to you and beneficial to me. In fact, that's what you try to do when you go overseas, when you negotiate, say, in China or or Japan or, for the most part, anywhere. Uh, you try to understand the other side. You try to be patient. You see negotiating as a process. In other words, you don't try to be legalistic, which I find amusing. You know, people go to China to negotiate to the People's Republic of China, and they bring along lawyers. Why? They don't have a legal system there. So, you know, if they breach the agreement, you can't sue them. There's no legal system, yet they bring along lawyers. You know, they're ridiculous. Hmm. Well, Herb, you really are such an interesting person. You've lived such an interesting life. Your techniques, your your style, your art, actually, I'm going to call it an art form, um, is just absolutely fascinating. Thank you for joining us on Living Wealthy Radio today. And please let our listeners know how they can find you online. Uh, well, I guess you could find me at Herb Cohen. Uh, 427 at gmail.com. That's, and then I have uh, a uh, website, which I don't really look at that much. But at one time I did write it, and uh, actually it's pretty interesting. I am not that commercial in that uh, I have probably a crummy website in terms of drawing viewers to it. And I don't really care, or I care, but not that much. And uh, <laughs> I, I'm kind of casual. In fact, I never uh, did any marketing. People would come to me. And uh, so it's all like word of mouth. People recommend me. Hey, you got to get this guy. If he's still alive, check out. In fact, that's what I get. That's how I get business. People write me. My boss told me to call you if you're still alive. <laughs> so how old a, are you? Well, I'm 83. I just was 83. Oh, fantastic. Oh, my but, goodness. Congratulations. Well, thank you. April 27th, that's my birthday. Uh, but uh, I am fortunate and I lucked out. You know, I'm like in good health and uh, who knows? I'm surprised. You know, I, I did so much traveling, I really should be infirm by now, but I'm not. And I still, you know, travel, go to places. I'll be going to the Middle East July 1st, and that'll be interesting. And, you know, people call me to ask me to do this. To that. And I, you know, if it's a challenging situation, I get involved. Well, Herb, I wish you the absolute best. Thank you so much for coming on Living Wealthy Radio. I wish you just the absolute best and another, who knows, 10, 15, 20 years of, of uh, doing your art. 
Who knows? <laughs> Remember the no. greatest legacy you have in your life. The biggest thing you could accomplish is your children, your spouse, your relationship. And in the final analysis, that's really what enriches your life. And that's what you leave behind when you go. So, you know, people got to spend time negotiating those things as well. Mm. Well said, Herb. Well said. Again, oh. thank you so much. Okay, thanks for having me. Good luck and bye-bye. Bye-bye, Herb. You've been listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. Download or subscribe to our podcast to hear a new show every week. I am Teresa Kuhn, and I hope you'll join me again next week as I show you ways to live wealthier. Resources are available for you on our website at livingwealthyradio.com. 